According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs 20, we've been looking at, uh, oh, down around verse 15 or so, halfway through the chapter. Talking about uh, bargaining in verse 14, bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes away, then he boasts. And then in verse 15, there is gold and an abundance of jewels, but the lips of knowledge are a more precious thing. More precious because it's more rare. The aspect of scarcity, which determines price and uh, value. And uh, half of the supply and demand equation comes from the supply side, the scarcity, and uh, the issues there. All right, well, let's start with a word of prayer and set, set apart our, uh, our time of study, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father, calling upon your faithfulness to bless our time together, hedge us about, protect us, hinder anyone that would try to come in here and bring us to harm or stop what we're doing. Father, uh, bless our time of study and open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. We do thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, dealing with these issues here, and, and it's kind of interesting, so many of these back-to-back here are centered on financial aspects or economic principles that we can glean in terms of biblical standards related to the free exchange of goods and services. And uh, so it's useful to, uh, to work our way through here. And so we outlined it under point 13, if I have the right slide here, there we go. And uh, it's unfortunate that if you read the commentaries, a lot of them are very negative. In fact, about 90% of the commentaries are pretty harsh. Uh, and they view this speaker, uh, the, the fellow saying, bad, bad, says the buyer, and they're viewing him as essentially dishonest, viewing him as, as a cheat, as somebody that's deceptive when he says bad, bad. And then when he goes away, he boasts uh, because he got away with some kind of mischief or some deception. He, uh, he got to part ways uh, having stolen, essentially stolen from uh, the person that he misled. And really, I mean, you can kind of see it that way, but you have to read into it and uh, and make some assumptions in order to, to read it that way. Um, if you step back and, and read it more honestly or more straightforward, in a straightforward fashion, bad, bad, well, every buyer says that. That uh, it's not illustrating dishonesty, but rather it's uh, illustrating the negotiated give and take between two parties in a free exchange. And uh, we don't have the words of the seller listed here or recorded here. If we did have the words of the seller listed here, then he would be saying, good, good. You know, good, good, says the seller. Bad, bad, says the buyer. And this is what happens in the, in the free exchange uh, of, uh, of commerce. This is what happens when you have a buyer and a seller and the voluntary exchange of, uh, of goods and services. And so it's a negotiation. It's a negotiated give and take. And that's why it's repeated. That's why it's bad, bad, repeated twice. And then on the third time through, they agree and they come to an agreement and they proceed forward from there. And so when he goes away, then he 
worships and the halal, the praise, can be a praise and worship. It doesn't have to be an inappropriate boasting. It can be a very appropriate boasting. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we call that praise. Every time we say hallelujah, we're using the Hebrew word halal to, uh, to praise God, to praise Yah, Yahweh, for uh, what He's provided and the grace of what He's provided there, Doug. And the, uh, the blessings we have to, uh, to celebrate the faithfulness of God and His provision. If we have a good deal, we have a good deal. And, uh, and we're thankful for that. All right. And so uh, we moved on from there to the idea of scarcity, another economic principle. Scarcity is a determiner of value. Uh, in other words, the more common something is, typically the less valuable that it is and the less useful that it is as an exchange. I talked about uh, cutting the grass last week. And if, if grass was worth $1,800 an ounce, then uh, you know, that'd be something. You just go cut your yard and save the trimmings and, and uh, weigh it out by the ounce and you'd, you'd make a lot of money that way. But then would you really make a lot of money that way? Because everybody else in town can do the same thing. So if everybody has it, then what value is it? It's not worth anything. You go and you offer somebody a handful of grass and you'd say, well, big deal, I got the same thing. And so the scarcity is what helps to determine the value of something. It is a determiner of value. The second determiner that goes with it is desire. Because even if there's, there's none, if there's very little of it, but nobody wants it, well then that, that diminishes the value as well. My illustration there being buggy whips. There aren't too many buggy whips around these days. Uh, well, that's because nobody really needs a buggy whip anymore. Who drives a buggy anymore? You know, the horse and buggy is kind of done away with now, except maybe the Amish or, or you know, uh, groups there. Uh, so yes, there's a scarcity, but there's also practically no demand. So if there's no demand, then there's no market, and at which point then scarcity uh, no longer determines the value. So economic principles related here. When we get to the issue of debt, take his garment um, when he becomes surety for a stranger and for foreigners hold him in pledge. And uh, the problem here when you become surety, uh, when you, especially when you become surety for anyone really, but there's, there's God has designed the family and community and on a local basis He's designed the business dealings and the economic co- uh, connections to be to be grounded in local commerce so that we don't have um, unsecured debt, so that we don't have uh, surety for people we don't know or foreigners that are hostile to our local interests. That becomes a big problem as well. And so this is point 15 in the outline, debt obligations. Debt obligations are terrible. And uh, the idea of going into debt, there may be legitimate reasons for going into debt, and there are specific investments that, that need to be made in, on a collective basis, whereby groups of people come together on a joint venture. But the idea of a personal debt and having somebody beyond God's design be the guarantor, you start to wonder what, what motivation does he have uh, beyond the financial? And within the financial, if it, if it makes legitimate business sense, why are you having such a hard time finding creditors? Why are you finding such a hard time finding business partners? Why are you turning to a stranger? Why are you turning to a foreigner? And so the vocabulary on this really stresses, I think, you have the, the stranger in the, in the A part of the verse, and then you have um, the foreigner 
in the, uh, in the B part of the verse. And so both of those combined there then, I think, uh, tell the issue here for what it is. All right. And so um, as we deal with it, debt obligations are terrible. Because once you get into a debt that you cannot repay, now what are you going to do? Now you can't repay it. Your creditor wants to get repaid, and he's going to start seizing the uh, either the collateral or he's going to start uh, seizing. Uh, he's going to start going to the guarantors. In other words, the co-signers on the loan or the the uh, business partners that became the surety. And and keep in mind in the modern world, of course, we have foreclosure and we have bankruptcy proceedings and we have courts and we have all kinds of other things that are available. Uh, in the ancient world, it was a bit simpler than that. In the ancient world, it was called slavery. In the ancient world, you were sold for your debt. And uh, that's something we no longer have. We've uh, abolished all uh, personal slavery and all debt slavery. Uh, other than the one place where it remains is still in the um, the world of uh, divorce court and child support. That's the last place where debt slavery still exists because uh, failure to pay child support can uh, put uh, put a man in, in jail and uh, the issues there. But that's a separate sermon. <laughs> we just start here with these debt obligations and the, and the consequences of, of, uh, of liquidation, the consequences of, of a debt that you cannot repay. And so they go after your creditors, they go after your guarantors, the one who has become surety on behalf of somebody else. And so this can spark war, this can, especially if you've got foreigners, you know, if, if you don't pay your tribute to the neighboring king, well, what's he going to do? He's going to invade and he's going to get what's, what he thinks he needs and what he wants. And, and uh, on into slavery goes the, goes the captive people. So it's terrible. In, in the biblical sense, you have personal consequences, you have family consequences, because it was always designed whereby the economy was as local as possible. And the business dealings were dealt with in the families and within the clans. And so the, you, have, you would, in fact, network together different families, and that was done through arranged marriages. And that was done through uh, bringing different family groups together and giving my son to your daughter. And, and we're, we're bringing together the families and the clans for their economic uh, situation. And if someone does grow so poor that they struggle to, uh, to, to pay their, their debts or their expenses, then the family and the clan was there. That's where the principle of the kinsman redeemer is developed. So that a near kinsman like Boaz can purchase a, a plot of land that had belonged to um, Eleazar there. And anyway, the whole story in the book of Ruth is about the kinsman redeemer and and what is required to redeem a a property and to keep it within the family, to keep it within the clan. And if that means that you have to marry Ruth in order to raise up a child to to uh, to the son that didn't have a son, well, that's part of it too. Because all of these are the principles that teach uh, doctrine that, that God was teaching the Jewish people related to, and especially in the sense of kinsman redeemer, related to what the, the second Adam was going to do when he comes to this world and he redeems all of us, redeeming us from our sins. And in order to do that, he had to be a near kinsman. So uh, these principles then get spelled out in this way. And it's, uh, it is significant. And so it's spelled out here in verse 16, take his garment 
and a garment could be held as a pledge, but then there's also um, a bit of grace involved, even within law, that says, you know, if that's his only garment, you've got to return it to him at night so that he's not freezing overnight. You want him to survive the night and be alive tomorrow to, you know, he'll give you the, the cloak back in the morning again, and you can hold that collateral tomorrow, uh, but don't keep it overnight. And uh, those issues there. All right. So yes, take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. In other words, go ahead and and hold his collateral. Go ahead and participate with him. Help him from this. Because the stranger isn't going to have the mercy that that you're going to hopefully have. And then for foreigners, hold him in pledge. Oh my goodness, let's not make this a, a cause of war. Hold him in pledge. And when a Jewish person has another Jewish person as a bondservant, as a slave, again, there's grace and mercy there because there's, there's redemption after the seventh year and that's, you don't want the foreigner to, uh, to enslave the Jewish person. Anyway, this was warned about earlier in childhood. Theme was introduced in childhood and it's useful. Give your child uh, an allowance. Teach your child the value of money and uh, the benefit to savings and, and these issues. Start those habits early that they can carry with them uh, in a lifelong routine. Proverbs 6, pretty um, significant. In other words, get out of that debt now. Save yourself. Don't be, uh, don't be a... Um, there we go. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, why are you doing that? Why are you guaranteeing somebody else's loan, somebody else's sketchy business dealing, somebody else's problems, and and you're just guaranteeing it based on what? Friendship? Uh, Why is his family not working with him on this? Why is his clan not arranging the marriages in such a way? Why, uh, Why is he coming to you? See, you know, I mean... These, these lenders of dubious nature, you know, there's a reason why. You go to the loan shark because you can't go to Chase Bank, okay? So you're going to shady places when you can't go to the legitimate uh, sources for, um, for cash. Anyway, so if, if you got roped into this somehow, get out of it. Rescue yourself. Even if uh, no matter what kind of begging you have to do, no matter how much it hurts your pride or your shame, uh, you've got to get out of that. If you've been snared with the words of your mouth and been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself, importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand. That's how serious it is. You're like a trapped animal and you're about to get eaten. Like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So that's, a, that's an early lesson in childhood. Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5. Then it gets repeated again and again in the adult capacity. Proverbs 11, Proverbs 17, we've already seen. There's a future one coming up in Proverbs 22. 26 and 27. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? <laughs> yep. There you go. And, and you find that all of your uh, possessions are liquidated and sold at auction and, and you yourself 
uh, in the ancient world now would be sold into debt bondage, sold into slavery. And that was the, uh, the provision there. Mosaic law provided gracious elements for Israel to apply to one another. And this is the aspect about give him his cloak back at night in uh, Exodus 22 verses 25 through 27. A lot of times Mosaic law is thought of as being heartless and cold and unbending and, and vicious. Um, and, but there were elements of grace that to, that to be found that were woven within Mosaic law, as I mentioned, the um, aspect of slavery in the, in the Jubilee year and the freedom on the seventh year. And uh, here's another principle in Exodus 22. A little touchpad is touchy today. Maybe that's why it's called a touchpad. Because it's touchy. Let me move it up here. No. I am not very good at this. Alright, Exodus 22. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. And so recognizing that, yes, you have a brother, he needs help, you have a kinsman, you have a fellow Jew, and, uh, and he needs money lent, well then they didn't charge interest to fellow Jews. In the Middle Ages they got around this, they could, they could charge interest to the Gentiles all day long. <laughs> and Jewish bankers could get all kinds of rich, uh, you know, towards the goyim, uh, with uh, lucrative uh, banking practices and, and all the rest. But not to fellow Jews, that was prohibited by the law. So you're not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. He's going to need that. He's going to get cold tonight. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And uh, it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him for I am gracious. I am gracious. So, you know, yes, it's the collateral. And yes, he gave it to his collateral but let him use it at night, okay? He'll give it back to you in the morning. He still owes you, and uh, there's, so there's an element of grace involved there. Anyway, so many of these principles are interesting uh, as we deal with it. Let's look at verse 17 now. Dishonest gain. Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Okay, now here's a snake. Here's a negative connotation, and you don't have to read into it because uh, the text tells you this guy stole. This guy obtained bread by, by fraud, theft uh, by fraud, if you will. If you've obtained it by falsehood, if you've, if you've somehow misrepresented something, if you've been unethical in a business practice, then that's, uh, that's wrong. That's, that violates thou shalt not steal. You are effectively stealing in uh, this dishonest business practice here. So bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man. And so there's the carnal mind that obtained it, and then the carnal mind that enjoys the fruit of what he obtained. And a uh, sense of the swindler and the thief or whoever he, whatever he got away with, he's, uh, he's able to rejoice in his plunder, able to uh, celebrate how clever he is. In, uh, in what he's obtained. So there is an immediate gratification. It's what the book of Hebrews calls the passing pleasures of sin. 
that the carnal mind that succeeds in his carnal endeavors has a carnal thrill, a carnal joy that, uh, that enjoys what, what it is that he's done. See, sin can be fun in a sinful perspective. We don't want to deny that. So dishonest gain provides an immediate gratification, but a delayed consequence. There is a delayed, either a hardship or a bad taste or an aftertaste or a, uh, a hardship that then follows. So afterward, his mouth will be filled with gravel. So it doesn't taste so well now, does it? You, you done got caught, didn't you? And so that bread that did taste sweet, how does it taste now? You know, anything that you eat, how long does the flavor last? Well, you know, while you're chewing it or after you're done chewing it and then you swallow, maybe a little bit after you swallow, you can still taste a little bit, okay? But then what do you got to do? You're going to go steal another one? You got to keep it up? I mean, if, if you're living for just the sensory perception of, of what something tastes like, then you got to keep eating it. You got to keep eating it. And then what happens afterwards? And so we see it spelled out here. In fact, Bible uses this metaphor in a lot of ways. It uses the imagery here in a lot of different capacities. And it's a principle not just for eating, but all the appetites. Sexual activity is described in this way. Um, there's a principle to, to this that we saw earlier in Proverbs 9 related to the seductress, this woman that was trying to, uh, trying to seduce this young man. And he fell for it. Fairly common. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 17. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. She's not talking about bread and water there. That's a metaphor, okay? She's uh, calling out the woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by who are making their paths straight. And so she has a, an establishment and she's calling out for folks and trying to bring in business. And, uh, and her favorite targets are the naive. Her favorite targets are the ones that aren't looking for. Those are easy enough. There's plenty of those guys that are looking for. She's trying to expand her clientele, trying to expand her business. And uh, to do so by reaching out to other folks that aren't necessarily shopping for this kind of activity. But if she can get them in that mode, if she can increase her, her, her customer base, then uh, that, that will hopefully produce future business, at least as far as she's concerned. And so calling to those who pass by, in other words, they're just passers-by. They weren't intending to stop. Her house is not their objective. They're just passing by, but she's trying to get them to stop. And uh, they're making their path straight. She wants them to make their path crooked. <laughs> you know, get them off the straight and narrow. Put them on the crooked path. Get them on the shady side of, uh, of culture. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding. So that's her target audience. You know, and, and we, can, we can ask this. In, in business, if you've got a product to sell and your primary customer base is people who don't know better, ask yourself, what kind of business are you in? What, you know, if, if it's somebody that doesn't know better, is that really a free exchange? Is that really what God designed where somebody who 
knows what he wants and is in the market for it and somebody who has the product. And that's the free exchange right there. But if you're selling to somebody that doesn't know any better, what kind of shady used car salesman are you? (laughs) What kind of drug dealer? What kind of whorehouse are you running? Okay, in this case, this is the woman that has the establishment that, all right, wasn't going to use the word whorehouse this morning. I'm sorry. If there's, if there's a kinder term for it, we could be more gracious in church. But, I mean, it, it is what it is. All right. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here to him who lacks understanding. So, oh, you don't know anything about this? Let me introduce you. Okay? Like the victim here. Somebody says, I don't really know how to play Scrabble. That's okay. I'll teach you. You know. Meanwhile, I'm looking forward to winning by 300 points or more because, uh, yeah. Stolen water is sweet. This is what she says to him who lacks understanding. She says, stolen water is sweet. Oh, it's going to be fun. You're going to like this. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Nobody's going to know. That's the best part. You know, and you think about Joseph sold into slavery down there in Egypt and Potiphar's wife was throwing herself at him and he holds fast his integrity. Even though who's going to know? His brothers, his dad. I mean, he's, he's a slave in a foreign country. Who's going to know? So bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. There's consequences. There's lifelong consequences and consequences beyond physical life when you compromise your integrity and you live in defiance of the Word of God. And so this too, I think, illustrates the principle that maybe there's an immediate gratification. Maybe there's, yeah, there's, there's a, a, you know, a thrill or a whatever, a climax. And yeah, so they, they had an event. Woohoo. But then what's the price to pay afterwards? And then what's the ongoing price to pay? How much damage do you do to your soul in the long term? All right. Uh, in the book of Job, Job 20, And now this is the words of Zophar. Keep in mind, we glean a lot of wisdom in the book of Job, even, uh, even from the critics who uh, are in, oftentimes they are not wrong in what they're saying. They are correct in what they're saying as a general principle of wisdom. Where they go wrong, though, is assuming that Job is, is guilty and that Job is under divine discipline for some secret sin. So they're wrong on that assumption. And based upon that assumption, then it, it, colors the things that they say. But in and of themselves, the things that they say are not actually wrong oftentimes. And so we can glean a tremendous amount of wisdom here. And so this is Zophar, the, uh, the name of Thide, and he's got this uh, response. I'm going to skip down to verse 12 here. Yeah. All right. So verse 12, though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, Though he desires it and will not let it go, but holds it in his mouth. Okay, so you get the, the, the imagery on this. It's in his mouth, it's sweet, and he doesn't want to really chew it and swallow it immediately. He just wants to kind of hold it there, hide it under his tongue. The longer you hold it there, try to prolong the sweetness. He desires it, will not let it go, but holds it in his mouth. Yet his food in his stomach is changed. Once he does swallow it and settle, and it settles, then, oh, it's not so good. <laughs> to the venom of cobras within him, ooh, not good. He swallows riches, but will vomit them up. 
God will expel them from his belly. And so similar to what we have in Proverbs, there's, there might be an immediate blessing, an immediate gratification, but then, oh, no, it didn't sit well in your stomach, and you end up expelling it or vomiting it or um, discharging it. God will expel them from his belly. He sucks the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue slays him. He does not look at the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and curds. He returns what he has attained. He cannot swallow it. As to the riches of his trading, he cannot even enjoy them. And what Zophar is trying to say here, and again, he's wrong because he's blaming Job. He's he's assigning that Job is guilty for something. But he's talking about a general principle of wisdom whereby uh, things that are obtained through sin or obtained through wrong ways, that you can obtain wealth but not have the spiritual capacity to enjoy it. And uh, we see here, he, as to the riches of his trading, he cannot even enjoy them. That he's lost the capacity to enjoy. And this, this is so true in so many of the ways. Back to the sexual thing, it's you lose your capacity for true marital fulfillment because of repeated and prolonged exposure to, to uh, perversions uh, of, uh, of God's blessing. For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has seized a house which he has not built. And so, uh, you know, and so to assume that Job made his fortune through this way and now it's finally catching up to him, that's a, it's a wrong assumption on, on Zophar's part. But he's correct in expressing in general terms what's very common to, uh, to the wicked and uh, who do get rich in this, uh, in this terrible way. Because he knew no quiet within him, he does not retain anything he desires. Nothing remains for him to devour. Therefore his prosperity does not endure. You talk about the sadness of things. You know, because he knew no quiet within him, he didn't have the capacity to start with, to truly enjoy the grace of God, to enjoy God's blessings, to enjoy abundance in in temporal life. And so it just it becomes vanity of vanities. This guy, he's, what he's really describing here is Ecclesiastes prior to, to Solomon writing Ecclesiastes. Nothing remains for him to devour, therefore his prosperity does not endure. If you're all about the plundering, what happens when you run out of people to plunder? <laughs> if you're all about um, high taxes and stealing from productive people, how long does that last? At what point, as Margaret Thatcher said, at some point you run out of other people's money. And uh, that was her famous line about the limitations of, of socialism. Um, if there's nothing left to devour, now what? Anyway, so there's more. In the fullness of his plenty he will be cramped. The hand of everyone who suffers will come against him. All your victims will eventually wise up to what you're doing. When he fills his belly, God will send his fierce anger on him and he will rain it on him while he is eating. <laughs> he may flee from the iron weapon, but the bronze bow will pierce him. Just when you think you've, you've insured yourself against everything, here comes something you didn't insure yourself against and, uh, and it's got you. Anyway, it's an interesting chapter. Like I say, um, he's wrong when he attributes the wickedness to Job. That Job is not 
receiving God's divine judgment for, for improper uh, you know, victimizing of the poor. That's not what Job had done. So we have the dishonest gain there. All right, that's verse 17. What's verse 18 about? Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Well, that's a good idea. All right, consultation is always good. Consultation is good, but it must start with the Lord. Consultation apart from the Lord is useless. You can consult with a bunch of unbelievers and a bunch of carnal-minded folks and, and ignore the will of God. And then in that case, all the consultation in the world is, is useless. Uh, but if you start with the fear of the Lord, if you start humbly before your God, then uh, start with that as a base. You're, uh, you're in the will of God. You're humble before Him. You're walking in the light. You're living according to Scripture. If, if, if all of that is, is on target, then consultation's a marvelous thing because those are the kind of people you're going to consult with. You're going to find fellow believers, other uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, other, other uh, believers with wisdom, and, and you're going to consult. We've seen this before in Proverbs 11, Proverbs 15. We're going to see it again in Proverbs 24 that uh, consultation is a blessing, but it's got to be with the Lord. Let me uh, start the, let me take this slide backwards. We'll start with the, uh, the with the Lord principle because we were here a couple weeks ago. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Remember this? Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So if you have not, if you're not in the will of God, if you're not walking with the Lord, if you're not fellow workers with what He's doing, that means you're just uh, doing your own thing. You're out there uh, apart from what He's doing and actually you're a bit of an adversary. You're, you're, uh, you've got some plan going on and it's not God's plan. So uh, you want to build a house and God's not doing it? Good luck. <laughs> you're on your own there. And in that ev- event, it doesn't matter who you consult with. Get all the con- consultation you want. God's not building that house. You labor in vain. Same thing with guarding the city. If God's not doing it, what are you doing? It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. This is the verse we saw a couple weeks ago. For He gives to His beloved even in His sleep. We need sleep. We don't want to abuse it. We don't want to worship it. We don't want to enjoy it so much that we become sluggards. There's a balance to that. That's what we were trying to teach when we were looking at this the balance to that. Uh, you need appropriate sleep and you can faith rest and trust in God that, uh, that He's giving you what you need during the time of your sleeping and then He's going to give you what you need during the time of your waking as you're His fellow worker and you're, you're keeping yourself in His will. So you've got to start with the Lord. Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6, maybe our favorite Proverbs. The, the ones we could quote before we started the Proverbs series. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. So if you're, uh, you're going to try to accumulate counselors and, and God's not counselor number one in your, in your Rolodex, you know, start with Him. Consult Him first of all. Be with Him daily in prayer, in Bible study, in the Word. And then, so He's, he's your number one counselor. He's your number one uh, guidance. And then go to, go to other counselors. Go to other sources of wisdom. Call your pastor up. See what he thinks. Call, uh, call up a deacon. Call some brothers and sisters in Christ. But you start with the Lord. You start with the Lord. 
So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. You understand all your ways is all your ways. <laughs> okay? I, I checked the Hebrew on that. It's all your ways. It's not, it's not just, you know, the biggies or the things you can't handle. It doesn't say, you know, handle the little stuff on your own and then if it's something too much for you, then yeah, then you kind of go to God and He'll bail you out. That's not what it says. It says all your ways. And these things that you think are little things, they're not as little as you think they are, and you're not as good as you think you are. So in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Even the little things, all things. So that He gets the glory for everything. There's not one thing that I want to steal His glory from and try to claim it for myself. Because once you get on that path, once you start thinking that, that yeah, you can handle the little things, that means you're, you're trying to claim a little credit for these things over here. You want a little bit of, you know, to Bob be the glory for little things over here. No, it's to God be the glory for everything. And and you realize what a slippery slope that is and how dangerous that is? Because as soon as you get that in your mindset, and I think maybe it's one of the, probably it's one of the the elementary principles of this cosmos. It's one of the stoicheia, fundamental building blocks of how this world works. Is that God expects us to handle the little stuff and go to Him for the big stuff problem is, is that all that does is feed pride. Because you can look at the next guy and say, wow, look at that. I, my little stuff is bigger than his little stuff. And uh, I, can, I can handle more bigger little stuff than he can handle. And uh, he's quicker to call, cry uncle and call God for help. And I'm slower to do that because I can handle more. And all that is is just feeding pride and arrogance and it's selfishness. It's horrible. In all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. So assuming that this is on target, that you're walking in the Lord, you're acknowledging Him in all your ways, He will make your path straight. Part of Him making your path straight is giving you counselors, giving you older brothers and sisters, giving you firm guidance that's going to come and it's going to reinforce your faith and you're going to reinforce their faith. And sometimes uh, you're going to end up being somebody else's counselor for something they've got going on. That's fine too. In fact it's supposed to work like that. And so we need the abundance of counselors. Because you know what? Plans and making war, war is not a simple endeavor. Making war is, uh, you know, all the logistics of war or something else. And in some cases, the actual combat stage of war is among the simplest, okay? You know, they die, you live, there you go. But then the, the actual logistics and the, and the supply chains and the reinforcements and the, the repair of equipment and, and all the, uh, the, the, the strategy that goes into where do we fight this war and how do we prepare this battlefield and how did we even get here in the first place and all the other strategy that goes into and maybe uh, this is a war we don't want to fight. <laughs> it's better if we just sue for peace now and uh, it's going to, you know, because we can survive that and, uh, and then prepare for, for war later. Those kind of things. The strategy and tactics is so much more involved in war. Patton said that uh, every other field of human endeavor pales in insignificance compared to the, the, uh, the rigors uh, of, of war. You're not going to do it on your own. Alright. Psalm eleven fourteen. There is no psalm. Uh, Proverbs. Proverbs. 11, 14. Where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. You know, there's a, there's a benefit to getting a second opinion. What if the first guy's wrong? <laughs> you know, get a third opinion. 
You know, because if the second opinion is the opposite of the first opinion, now you've got to flip a coin, how do you know which one to go with? Well, get a third opinion. Get a multitude of opinions and, and you realize, man, I'm glad I didn't go with what that first guy told me to do because the next six guys all said, that guy's you know, out to lunch. And uh, so you, you have an abundance and you have guidance and, and the value is too, is somebody brings up an idea and you think, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. And the first four guys didn't think of that, but the fifth guy thought of that. Man, I'm glad we asked you. That's, that, that helps us out. This too is uh, one of the tremendous thrills that happens when you come to a church prayer meeting. And, uh, and, you're, and you're able to listen to three and four and five and six different brothers and sisters all praying together and, and someone prays for something and it wouldn't have dawned on you in, in, in 100 years, say, or however long it takes you to finally attend a prayer meeting. Then you think, wow, wait a minute, this is kind of cool. And you start joining in those other prayers. And it teaches you to be a better prayer uh, warrior yourself. Proverbs 15.22 Without consultation plans are frustrated but with many counselors they succeed. And again this is uh, just in general principles. The more advice you get the better input you get. At a certain point though too many, uh, what's the expression? Too many chefs spoil the, spoil the soup. Yeah. So I mean the broth, whatever it is. Yeah. So um, you know just because you're getting all of the input doesn't mean you're using all the input. You're considering and you're considering and, and it may be that somebody offered something and you're thankful for it. You don't make use of it. Okay? And the same thing too, I think the problem with uh, too many chefs spoil the broth, you know, if, if everybody's going to throw something in there then it doesn't all combine very well. There's stuff that needs to not be in your soup. Okay? Um, you don't have to take everybody's advice but you should listen to it. And, and have reasons why you are discounting it or dis- disregarding it or because there's other things that balance out. There's other things that balance out. And so in the give and take of these negotiations and the considerations you, uh, you understand how this works. That's why we have the consultations that we have. 24-6 For by wise guidance you will wage war in the abundance of counselors, there is victory. And I don't know how many battles in world history were won this way because, um, because well, you know, you got the Trojan horse and whatever. I mean, you just, you just don't think. And you think, wow, this is great. It's in our hands, right? Or, or uh, little bighorn or whatever. You just, you just make an assumption. Oh yeah, you know, and you don't even stop to think. Maybe there's more Indians over that ridge and maybe we're surrounded and this could be a bad idea. And Custer, you know, doesn't matter how many battles you win, that last one can be awful. <laughs> and uh, the one you're famous for for the rest of, uh, the rest of uh, world history. Alright. So consultation is good. That's verse 18. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. And these are the things too, and I think God has given us a church family for this and the blessings why I like uh, God has blessed us with when I was praying about the through the Bible idea and I, I uh, sent an email to my elders. I asked, I said, Warren, what do you think about this? Pray about it please. And, and Glenn, pray about it. And Doug, pray about it. See if you know, we did a through the Bible series in 2002 and it's been almost 20 years. Uh, I'm kind of thinking about doing another one, you know. And but it's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. What do you think? We'd have to put Proverbs on hold for a year. We'd have to put Genesis on hold. What, you know? What do you think? This is going to be consuming, 
if we're going to teach seven times a week, 365 times in a year. And uh, would you please be praying for that? Is it a good idea, a bad idea? How do you think we should make it happen? If it's going to happen. So uh, you pray about it. And uh, like I say, ask your pastor. Get your pastor praying for it. Ask whatever it is. Thinking about changing careers. Thinking about buying a house. Thinking about marrying a girl. All these things. Okay? (laughs) Anyway. I just learned um, this week that John Wesley had a horrible marriage. And uh, and I didn't know this. Maybe I knew it, forgot it years ago or whatever, but he, uh, he got married way too fast and almost to spite his brother because the, the girl before that that he wanted to marry, Charles wouldn't let him. And uh, Charles um, actually married her off to somebody else and kept John from marrying her. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> and so then this other opportunity shows up and, and uh, he marries her as quick as he can before uh, John can, or before Charles can, can stop that one too. <laughs> and uh, Anyway, it it was not good, and uh, and and here's these guys, John and Charles. He had a rough rough marriage too, and very unhappy. And uh, you talk about workaholics and, and and pastors that that are always on the go and always doing these things. And yeah, he preached forty two thousand times in his life. But look at look how rotten his home life was. What uh, what's the reward going to be like at the judgment seat of Christ there? Anyway, so. Um, we have these we have these issues here. What's next? Verse 19. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore do not associate with a gossip. Proverbs 20:19. You know who the slanderer is? The slanderer, that's Satan. He's slanderer with a capital S. So any earthly slanderer you encounter, any human slanderer in your life, or you, if you become a slanderer, you're a servant of Satan. This is what he's all about. The slanderer is a servant of Satan. You know, his I wills, his first five I wills, all, every last one of them is a slander against God the Father. Every, you know, every lie that he tells, these slanders against God, against the Father, against the Son. The slanderer is the servant of Satan. In the Hebrew here it's the rakil. R-A-K-I-Y-L, Rakil, slander, talebearer. And the tale doesn't have to be true. Maybe it's true and just doesn't need to be said. Maybe it's not true. That's even worse. Sometimes, uh, you know, the difference between gossip and slander. Gossip is actually happens to be true. It's just you don't need to be telling that story to somebody that doesn't need to be hearing it. Slander is completely fabricated, completely made up. But it still accomplishes what it needs to accomplish because in the eyes of the one receiving it or the ears of the one hearing it, um, you are diminishing the value of the person you're slandering. And you're sparking then the consequences based upon something that's not true. That's the slander. This is what our accuser does. He accuses us night and day before the throne. And so the scripture talks about this and puts this in the, in the, the strictest of judgment. Slander and gossip, it's like, you know, why is lying equal to murder? Okay? And yet the, uh, the cosmos is so built so that the, the, uh, the elementary principles of the cosmos tell you that lying's not so bad. And little white lies are actually pretty good. And, uh, you know, there's, there's useful lies that you can tell. That uh, because those useful lies, 
make the person feel better or keep them from feeling bad. And so these little white lies are beneficial to culture, beneficial to society, or beneficial, you know, to, uh, to whatever. Does this dress make my... Um, <laughs> when, the, when the wife or the girlfriend asks the husband for his, his um, opinion... And it's, it's the no-win scenario. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It looks great. You usually try to find a way to not answer the question and change the subject, answer in a different way. Because you can't lie. All right. <laughs> anyway, there's other things. And, uh, and yet the world says, well, you know, some lies are beneficial. Anyway, so we have slander, we have talebearer, we have the career of somebody that moves about and uh, moving from one to the next to the next to the next. He doesn't stop. There's no stability with this guy. The, the idea of a peddler. Um, in fact, the root verb here behind rakil is a verb for um, a traveling salesman, a peddler, and, uh, and, a mar- and somebody that, that uh, goes about from place to place. And, um, and because he goes about from place to place, maybe he's got legitimate reasons for going about place to place because he's got merchandise and he goes about and he's, uh, he's, he's finding different uh, markets for his, for his wares. But as he goes about from place to place, he also can tell stories. He also can convey information. And uh, peddler networks uh, were, were very much um, spy networks in the ancient world and uh, even in the modern world. Uh, if you've got business dealings overseas and you've got connections in different parts of the, of the, of the world, well then those business dealings can become uh, exploited in, um, in uh, national security apparatuses and, and other uh, uh, espionage venues and things like that. Um, so it's, it's always been the case. And even back here, this Hebrew word, like I'm saying, the, the verb behind rakil could speak of a, uh, an emporium, a, 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 a marketplace or a peddler. And um, you've got to be careful with, uh, with those things. Anyway, so slandering, tail-bearing, they are spoken of. It's, it's, uh, the Scripture prohibits this. Let's look at this and then wrap up for the day. Leviticus 19.16. And it's curious to me because we have this verb that's used in the fall of Satan passage in Ezekiel 28. It said, by the abundance of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. And that trade, that verb there, that, or that noun, that trade there is, uh, is, is related here to the rakil. And uh, so he was a slanderer and he was, uh, um, he was unrighteous in his, uh, in his marketing. Anyway, Leviticus 19.16. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You know, the slander could be very harmful if, uh, because so many of the consequences of, of violating Mosaic law led to physical death, then your slander might result in, a, in an unjust conviction, might result in a, in a miscarriage of justice. But going about, very often this term rakil is connected to halak, it's connected to a verb of, of walking or going or traveling. And so going about as a slanderer. Or in the New Testament when the widow learns how to go about and act like a busybody um, because she has all this time on her hands and she loves the juicy bit of, of story, you know, like the Yenta character in, in Fiddler on the Roof. 
You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. Proverbs 11.13 He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Do you have the dis- discernment to if things that you know or you were told or you were entrusted with, then you don't just go babbling those to, to anybody. You, you're holding that as a trust. Are you going about as a talebearer? And do you enjoy being the source of the tale? See, that's the thing. Some people, they not only do they want to convey the information, they want to be the one that conveys it. They want to be the source. They want to be the one. Well, they heard it from me. Like, why does that matter? If they need to know, they need to know. And how about if the original person tells them instead of you? Wouldn't that be better? Instead of you? Why does it have to be you? What, what are you getting out of it? What benefit is it to you to be the one that lets somebody know something? That, that's usually a clue that there's a mental attitude problem at work behind the, the sin of the tongue. All of these sins of the tongue have mental attitude sins behind them. All right, so that's Proverbs eleven thirteen, Proverbs twenty nineteen. That's our passage today. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. So here's the thing, if you know that this character is a, is a gossip, if you know that he's a talebearer, if you know that he's a slanderer, if you know that he's constantly, well, what do you think he's talking about you when you're not around? Right? You know? Seriously, you want this guy for a friend? Because you know as soon as your back is turned, he's, he's telling your stories everywhere. You don't want that. What's that going to do? So don't associate with the gossip. Just, you know, why are you unequally yoked anyway? Step back. What's the connection here? Jeremiah 6 and verse 28. And uh, here's a, a rebuke on God's people. Let me back up a little bit. Well, verse 27 says, I have made you an assayer and a tester among my people that you may know and assay or assay their way. I'm not sure what the pronunciation is on that. All of them are stubbornly rebellious, going about as a talebearer. So you've got a whole culture, and this is they're thriving in this. You know, I think these guys would have invented Facebook if they could have before, uh, before Facebook came around because the whole culture just can't wait to tell everybody everything about everybody else. All of them going about as a talebearer, bronze and iron, all of them corrupt. The bellows blow fiercely, the lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, but the wicked are not separated. You know, when you assay something, if you're if you're purifying metal, if you're if you are working with impure substances and you're trying to purify those substances. And then instead you just end up with this mixture of, of filth everywhere. What have you really done? That's what these that's the imagery of this passage here. Jeremiah 9, 4. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor. Do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily, every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. <laughs> this is a this is a society that's in trouble. Okay? And uh, when your culture has reached this point where nobody trusts anybody, then everything's broken down. Marriage is broken down, family's broken down, communities have broken down. Nobody trusts everybody. And um, 
Yeah, they bend their tongue like the bow. Lies and truth, lies and not truth, prevail in the land. They proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Everyone deceives his neighbor, does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Man, when you've done so much sin for the day, you're just tired of, you know, you're worn out. That's that's a lot of sin. So there's a national uh, consequence if this becomes cultural. Ezekiel 22.9 And I think our culture is there now. At least certain segments of it. Where they've exchanged the truth for a lie. And things that are just flat out provably false. But they get accepted as truth. They are the politically accepted truth. And if you speak against it you are ostracized or worse. Slanderous men have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood, and in you they have eaten at the mountain shrines. In your midst they have committed acts of lewdness. And it's pretty bad, the things that they've done. Anyway, we'll let that go. Yeah, that's not a happy chapter either. (laughs) All right. Well, so we have it. All right, well, we covered a lot today. We covered 16, 17, 18, 19. We'll come back next week and talk about duties towards parents. Don't be cursing your father and your mother. And uh, don't be in a hurry to collect your inheritance because an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning. (laughs) Okay. All right, well, we'll deal with that. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for this study, Father, and the blessings that Proverbs has been Uh, all these months and years and as it continues to be, we thank you and we praise you. And Father, we ask for wisdom. If this is a series that's going to get put on hold, if we're going to do um, about a year and four more months worth, five more months, if if this series gets put on hold, then bring us to to a good place, Father, where uh, uh, I don't know if we can get all the way to chapter 24 by then, but whatever else, uh, Father, uh, that's all in your hands too. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.